Well, good morning, Life Point. Uh, my name is Dustin Yankaski. I'm a campus life pastor here at Life Point in Westerville. I uh, just want to take a quick moment to welcome you back, or if you're a guest with us uh, or newer, just want to welcome for the first time, uh, and also point you to lpguest.com, which is the QR code on the uh, seat back in front of you. Um, we have sermon notes there. Um, we also have a guest information tab that we'd like you to take just a 15, 20 seconds to fill out. Um, if you do that, we actually make a local uh, ministry donation uh, of your choosing on your behalf just to say thanks for doing that. Um, so, we are in week three of our sermon series that we're calling The Ascent. Um, it's where we're looking at ways God moves on the mountains of the Bible, and where we see God's purpose for you being established and rooted in his provision for you. Uh, throughout the series, we look at these five high-altitude moments uh, that show just that. Um, you know, I don't think it's a stretch to say that all of us have had moments where we've found it challenging to make a decision, right? Hopefully that's not a perpetual thing for you, like an everyday kind of thing, but it happens, right? Um, but there comes a moment where you just kind of need to make a call, right? You need to kind of get out of the middle and not be wishy-washy and just make a call. It's not always easy to make it, uh, but the more you prolong it and stay stuck in the middle by not making a decision, often the worse it gets. Um, I have a confession. I, uh, I have been tricked into a timeshare presentation. Have anybody ever sat through one of those? Yeah. Like, and, and I was young and naive, and so I sat down because they had promised a free cruise, and I was like, yes, I can't wait to get this. And I was like, oh, I see what's happening here. And they were just like laying the sales presentation on thick. Uh, I was 23 or 24. We had just been married for like a year or so. We'd had no money, no business being there, but they were going right at us. Um, and towards the end, the salesperson gets up to go get something, and my wife turns to me and says, I don't care what happens. When they get back, you say no. Like, we are not doing this. Uh, we have no money. Let's take our free cruise and get home. And I was like, yes, dear. Uh, person gets home and he, he gets back, and uh, he says, are you interested? And I said, no. Uh, he goes, well, what if we lower the, the payment and include these other perks? Are you interested now? And I said, maybe. And I felt my wife's eyes in my head. And he gets up again, and she's like, what are you doing? That was not a no. And I was like, I froze. I, I didn't want to say yes. I couldn't say no, so I just I landed in the middle. And so, you know, the salesperson's confused. My wife and I have tension. It just got worse and worse uh, by my indecision, right, my ability to not make a decision. Um, in 1 Kings chapter 18, Israel is at a point where they need to make a decision with God. They've been going on and on without making one, and things have just been spiraling downward as a result. In the 200 years post-King David, Israel had 20 kings. All of them were progressively more evil, and king number 20 is Ahab. In 1 Kings chapter 16, it says this about Ahab. It says, Ahab did more evil than all the kings before him. Ahab did more to provoke God to anger than all the kings before him. Now, Ahab, in a lot of ways, set the tone for Israel's divided allegiance with God. He couldn't decide between God and Baal. You might have heard it pronounced Baal, Baal. So he landed in the middle, right? He, he wasn't fully this side or fully this side. He just landed in the middle. He got stuck in the middle. On one hand, he decided to give his kids godly names, which counts for something, right? He named one of his kids Ahaziah, which means owned by Jehovah. And he named the other one Jehoram, which means Jehovah is exalted, but then he goes and marries Jezebel. She has 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah that she brings with her. And she, then she uh, systematically tries to kill and kills God's prophets and institute uh, Baal worship as the state religion. So she has 450 prophets of Baal, the storm god, 400 prophets of Asherah, the goddess of fertility. And so Ahab is kind of in this middle, like I'm kind of for God and kind of 
for these other prophets. And then the prophet Elijah enters the picture, and he has this back and forth with Ahab that's basically, my God is stronger than your God kind of conversation. Ahab thinks Elijah has offended the storm God, Baal, and that's why Israel's three and a half years into a drought. But Elijah's like, man, Ahab, God told you he would bring a drought if you did this and forsake him for other idols. What are you doing? What are you thinking? He's making a mockery out of your storm God that you keep on sacrificing to. And so it all ends with Elijah proposing a showdown of the gods on Mount Carmel. And as we get into this, we'll we'll have some points to follow. The first is why there is a God contest, how to detect when you're worshiping a false God, and lastly, how to identify the true God. So why there is a God contest. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 19 through 21, Elijah says, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 400 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. It's a big table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Basically, how many more years of the drought is it going to take for you to, like, wake up? How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Elijah tells us why this showdown of the gods is needed. Israel is limping between two different opinions. They are kind of of the opinion that God is God that Yahweh is God, and they're kind of of the opinion that Baal is God. They are stuck, just like Ahab. And Elijah says, both Baal and God can't be God. There's only one Lord of the storm. And this contest will settle it. It'll get you unstuck. Fix your limping. Finally settle your indecision. And Elijah names the problem, both for them and for us. In following God, there is no third option to land where you can have a little bit of God, a little bit of this God, a little bit of this different mutually exclusive ideology. That's not a third option. Elijah says, that's not a third valid place to land. In in actuality, it's being stuck in between two options. He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is, follow him. To be in the middle though, is to not move forward with either. It's to be stuck. And true to their lack of conviction, they say not a word. You know, I did did a study abroad my junior year of high school to Japan. And there was one negative impact of all that was that while I was gone, my junior year of American high school, I was supposed to be learning about certain, like, U.S. history facts, right? Well, that's lost on me forever now, right? You know, I I don't have that information unless I watch a late-night documentary. Uh, You know, I, I I just don't have it, and it pops up at weird times. But... You know, I know Japanese calligraphy, so that's opened all the doors in life for me. Um, so do you remember learning about the Monroe Doctrine? Are you familiar with that? Maybe that rings a bell. Named after James Monroe, it became a principle in U.S. policy that basically says, if another country messes with America or one of its territories, then they're going to get the whole thing, right? It's war. Um, and likewise, America agreed to not mess with other foreign nations and its, its territories in kind. So it's kind of governed U.S. policy and foreign relations since. There is a different Monroe Doctrine that I think governs um, American spirituality today. Marilyn Monroe was once asked if she believed in God. And her response was, I believe in everything a little bit. I believe in everything a little bit. Doesn't that sound like Israelites here? 
The question of which God to worship is ancient, but I can't think of a more relevant question for us today. We live in a time where more and more people are identifying as spiritual, but not religious, creating what they think are valid third options to land with God. So it's not uncommon for the average person to believe in a higher power, or maybe God, but also in karma, that people are inherently good. To be a little into horoscopes, believe that all religions are essentially the same, and recently, that there is no greater truth than what an individual decides to be true for themselves. Monroe, Monroe doctrine, to believe in everything a little bit. And like Ahab and Israel with God, it's not a valid third option. It's being stuck in between God and whatever else. And it causes limping. And so if you've been in a place where you feel stuck with God, like you're not moving forward with him, maybe this could help explain why. You can't move forward when you're stuck. And so this God contest shows us, reminds us that there's one God. Maybe Baal is withholding the rain. Maybe Yahweh is, but it can't be both. And this contest for finding the true God pushes right against spiritual relativism. The thought that all religions are essentially the same, which according to Barna research is the majority opinion of people under 25, but also super common in other age demographics. Because if all religions are the same, then yeah, why is Elijah making a big deal of this? Can I worship God, Yahweh, on the Sabbath and then Baal on Tuesday? Like, isn't it all relative? And maybe you've heard this analogy of spiritual relativism. Um, it says, you know, all the world religions are like blind people stumbling on, onto an elephant for the first time, right? The elephant being God in this. And so one blind person grabs the, the elephant's leg and goes, oh, this is what an elephant is, and teaches people based off of what they feel. Right? And one grabs the ear and is like, no, 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 it's like this. This is what the elephant's like. And one person grabs the trunk and says, no, 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 this is what God is like. And the spiritual relativist concludes like, hey, see, you can come to many conclusions, but it's the same elephant. It's the same God. You ever heard that? Logically, to say that is an ultimate claim about who God is, the very thing that they say you can't come to. To say there is one way to see God, and it's a relative view, is an ultimate claim about how to see God, which is self-defeating on its own definition. The very thing that they say you can't say, they say. And so it's not, listen, it, even though it pushes against that popular opinion, it's not about claiming that there's one way. All world religions, even relative worldviews, make an ultimate claim. It's about finding which ultimate claim is true, where the true God is. And Elijah's saying this contest will help expose that. And so the second point is, how do you detect when you are worshiping a false god? How do you detect when you're worshiping a false god? Verse 22 of, of 1 Kings 18 says, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you... Call on the name of your God, and I will call the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered, it's well spoken. So here's the showdown terms, so to say. 450 to 1. On a mountaintop, which is where Baal was often worshipped. So it's his turf. And whichever God answers their prophet's prayer with a fire on the sacrifices they prepared is God. And Baal is God of the storm, remember? Like lightning is totally his thing. They've been given every advantage. In verse 26, it continues. So they, the prophets of Baal, took the bull 
given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced. The same word actually used earlier for meaning limped. So they danced. They limped around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy. The Hebrew phrase here literally means relieving himself. But maybe he's on the john. That's literally what he's saying. Or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Some of you are like, I like Elijah. I hope my spot in heaven's right next to him. We would hang out. Verse 28. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears. So it takes a dark turn, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention because there was no one to pay attention. They had an idol, but they didn't have a God. Now, there are volumes of books written about idolatry, and we have two subpoints. So kind of the two subpoints of this is I want to take a look at Israel's idols and what that means for us, and then I want to look at how we can expose the idols that we worship. So looking at the idols Israel worshiped, Baal. Baal is a generic term meaning spiritual lord. Did you know that? It's like not a personal name for a god like Zeus or Athena or like, yes, they did have a storm god, Baal, but they had a sex Baal. They had a wisdom Baal. There was a god, there could, Baal could be anything, right? Um, and when we see this Baal worship or when we hear like, hey, there's multiple Baals, everything's a Baal, don't we kind of like look at that culture and go, oh, I'm so glad those silly primitive people, like we've, we've advanced, like we're so much more beyond, we've progressed. Like there's something in us that just feels like superior, I think. But can I, can I tell you something? I really think that they have a leg up on us, on you and I in this area. I think they had an understanding, a spiritual lordship, and a self-awareness to admit things that you and I often don't. They saw something like sex, money, power, and they say, wait a second, I see what it's doing in my life. It's reorienting my desires. It's, my, it's affecting my motivations, my decisions. Wait a second, it has spiritual power. It must be a God, Baal. They saw a spiritual dimension to things that pull on our hearts that you and I are often oblivious to. Because everybody worships something. Everyone is under some type of spiritual power. Everything can be a Baal. And so I just want to give a quick example just to illustrate this, just in case you're, in case you're skeptical, and then I want to kind of ask you what yours are. Uh, and so I pulled a, a random beauty ad from online, at least one of the appropriate ones I could show. And so you see this beauty ad. This is common, right? On TV, on the internet, on the side of your browser, like, you, I don't know, like at work, on your way to work. You see my bus stops. You see it everywhere. Now, there are, there's an image in here. There's products. There's information but it's not just image, products, and information, is it? If you pay attention, you'll notice there's a spiritual dimension to these kinds of ads. They want you to see this, to define for you what is beautiful, and they want you to want it, to value it, to tie your physical appearance and your worth to your image, to what is beautiful. They want you to pursue it to daydream about someone complimenting your beauty. If you're around these images long enough, and, and we are, <laughs> we live around them, it changes your desires, your motivations, your heart. 
You may, th- you may be thinking right now, Psh, I don't worship beauty. But then you see a mirror and something that's not as aesthetically pleasing as you think it should be and it bothers you deeply. Somebody compliments somebody else is gorgeous and you get jealous. See, at least ancient cultures had the self-awareness to say, um, it seems like I'm worshiping this. We'll call it Baal. <laughs> Greeks called it Aphrodite. We call it an ad. It's a ball. You and I are into Baal worship. It's human history. It's biblical history. Moses hadn't even come down from Mount Sinai before the Israelites were literally worshiping an idol. Over and over again. So the question is, are you able to name five idols that your heart wrestles with? Three? One? Do you have that kind of self-awareness that the ancient cultures had to recognize the spiritual dimension of things and the pull they have on our hearts? John Calvin said our hearts are perpetual idol factories. We take good things and our hearts turn them into ultimate things. So can, can we put our guards down? My question is, can we put our guards down just for a little bit, long enough to consider it, to admit it? So how do we expose the idols we worship? Giving more of our hearts to God, increasing our affection for him can be difficult, can be challenging if we don't expose the ground false gods have claimed on our heart. And without the Holy Spirit, we do not have much of a shot to see. (laughs) But with his help and engaging with the living word of God, the hope is that we can grow in awareness of this, start to have eyes to better see. I think maybe the worst thing that we can do is to take a quick peek at our heart, like quick inventory, and go, whoop, not there. Must be talking about the person next to me, right? I've heard it put like this, like, like imagine this is your idol, right? And you hear me or, or the word of God suggest, hey, you have deep idols that I want to address. And you look up and go, nope, don't see it. But if we, we engage with God and with the help of the Holy Spirit, the hope is that he starts to pull it down to expose to us the things that pull our hearts more than God does. It's a blind spot for a reason. Let's just start with assuming that they're there and they run deeper than we would want to be true. So how do we expose idols? How did Baal get exposed as an idol? Right, there were prayers offered up. No one listened. There was performing. There was dancing, frantic prophesying. No response. There was pain incurred. There was slashing, sacrificing. No one paid attention. If you want to find your idols, Look where you frantically perform slash and sacrifice. Where you experience some of the greatest pains. Because coming to a spiritual Lord, an idol, you can't come as a friend. Can't come with someone cherished by it. You have to come to impress. You have to come to dance, perform, to get the response that you need, you want. You must sacrifice. You gotta get its attention. And when it doesn't show up like you need it to, it ruins you. So I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about some idols that we deal with. I think it would be kind of tragic if we just looked at the Israelites and their idolatry and didn't really name ours. So can I suggest just four? I mean, there can be many, right? Because anything can be an idol. This is not fun. Exposing our idols is never fun, but it's necessary. So I just want to start with first, kids, if you have them. Your kids, going right for the jugular for some of you, right? (laughs) For me, it's mine. Man, you know your kids have become idols because of all the best outcomes you can imagine and the worst tragedies that you can imagine. The ultimate involved them. 
They are a source of ultimate joy or ultimate unrest. Your priorities, schedules, lives orient themselves around them. Your efforts and energies center around helping them succeed and get a leg up. And that's especially difficult because those annoying other parents in your circles do the same with their kids. So you got to keep on, you know, keep a pace to keep a leg up, right? You got to perform. You know, I was born and raised in Ohio. We planted a church in Pittsburgh for seven years. Then we moved back a few years ago when my oldest started kindergarten. And so she didn't grow up with kids on the block. You know, she didn't have those lifelong friends. You know, she just kind of transplanted back. Um, And it was difficult for her to fit in at first. Like, she would come home upset. The kids are leaving me out. The kids aren't letting me play with them. And that's hard, right? That stinks as a parent. But can I tell you something? That pained me like only an idol can. Ultimately. An idol of mine was under attack. I knew it because my thoughts, my heart despaired. Luckily, I saw it pretty easy because I'm like, man, I can't go confront kindergartens about this. <laughs> this is not going to work. Something's off in me. <laughs> Praise God. But instead of trusting God, my heart wanted to control. That's spiritual lordship. That's idolatry. And should we strive to parent well? Of course. Right? Should we love our kids? Absolutely. But when they become ultimate in our heart and they fail you or are under attack, your life starts to fall apart. Why is this happening? I'm so anxious. I'm embarrassed. I'm angry at myself. I'm angry at them. That's the pain that an idol inflicts. The slashing that exposes the idol. I did this. I did this. Why is this happening? This shouldn't be happening. That's the performance that exposes an idol. Have you ever judged a parent based on their kid's behavior? They must not have told them about Jesus. <laughs> like somebody didn't set firm boundaries. They must have used timeout instead of spanking. Like, right? You're looking at their performance, which should clue you into your heart. What you treasure. You, I, other parents are not more or less okay. Justified, valuable, treasured by Christ because of our parenting performance. Is it a role we need to try to step into and be faithful with? Absolutely. Is it our Lord? No, Jesus is Lord. Second, others might struggle with the idol of image that you're trying to create, an image that you're trying to create for yourself and live for. You want other people to view you in a certain way or you need to view yourself in a certain way. Like you, you need to see yourself this way. You want your boss and coworkers to know how hard you work, how valuable you are to this place. It lords over your behaviors and motivations. You want to be seen as competent or capable, and you fear, right? You have this pain cause when you think about yourself being in a position where you can't perform and live up to this image. Certain people's perceptions hold weight in your heart and in your soul. And there's this internal chaos when you can't maintain it. And maybe you idolize success, right? So the type of lifestyle that you, you chase after embodies that image, the vacations you take, the freedom that you have, the house and cars that you have, right? They all show this and they're part of it and they need to get updated all the time, right? They need to constantly get the newer ones, the better ones, update us, fix this. Why? Because this idol needs sacrifice to, impressed, to be maintained. Image idols show themselves when you look up to people who have this type of image and look down on those who don't. And you protect your images at all costs. Maybe it's the reason you won't talk about God with other people because that might affect the way they see you. 
And you got to protect that. An image as an idol takes first place in your heart. And you being created in the image of God, being his image bearer, his child, I mean, yeah, I guess that's nice at times too. Uh, third is uh, it's entirely possible that some of, the, some of, us, some of us in this room have image, uh, religious idols. If you've been in the church in a while, this one can be especially hard to put your guard down long enough to actually see. Um, but there are multiple ways this can play out. For some, being a good person. Your morality, which is your performance, is what you rely on instead of grace by faith in Jesus. You have these boxes your heart needs to check. And to be okay with God, you need to keep up on that list. Being a good Christian, whatever that is, is the thing you are putting your ultimate hope in. And so this idol boasts in your performance rather than the cross. And so maybe it's truth that you idolize. Believing the right things mean more to you than Jesus dying for you. Now, are believing the right things right and good? Absolutely. But this, this is, there's a type of person that needs to in order to feel justified. Often struggle to find lasting community with the people of God because they always see everybody else beneath them intellectually. The criticism of others' lack of knowledge is more often professed than their own growing love and affection for God. Right? You see how this affects the heart. Doctrine takes lordship and a relationship with Jesus comes secondary. And the last religious idol that I struggle with, maybe I idolize spiritual gifts where things like leadership, evangelism, or teaching are sought after, talked about, and desired more than Jesus. Jonathan Edwards had a critique of one of the great mistakes that evangelicals make today, mistaking spiritual gifts for spiritual fruit. What Edwards points out is that this idol shows itself in ministry performance. Because even though you say you believe in justification by grace, you actually believe in justification by ministry. And so you might say things like, I know God's with me. I know I'm okay. I know I'm right because of all the things that is happening through me. With this idol, you can pursue ministry outcomes. What happens when you live it out of your, out of your gifting more than God? So those are religious ones. The last one is, is money, right? Money can be a good thing, right? You can do a lot of good with it. It's helpful to have, but can easily become a source of identity and security rather than God. You feel in control when you have it and out of control when you don't. And this is, this is the weird trickiness of it. Do you find yourself daydreaming about being further along with it than you are currently? Like, does that, like, dominate your mind, your mindfulness? So you might think, say or think things like, if I just could have a little bit more to get out of debt, man, then things would really be great. Once we have enough in reserve, man, then I can relax and be happy. When I get that raise, things will just be better, if only type of statements. Our peace and joy are anchored in the cross, but the idol of money can sometimes blur that make us think peace and joy are on the other side of more money. Listen, every tax bracket has its own set of idols. Every career path, every family tree has them passed down. Races do, genders do, friend groups, cities. Columbus's are different than Seattle's, but they're both there. Can we expose them? Can you see them? And so lastly, how do we identify the true God? How to identify the true God? In verse 30, Elijah said to the people, come here to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. 
You know, then Elijah says Elijah doused his sacrifice with water, which went beyond what he asked the prophets of Baal to do. In verse 36, it says, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The prophets of Baal were performing for most of the day. Elijah had less than a minute of faith-filled prayer. The difference was the one he was praying to. So you want to find the true God? How do we find him here? How did Israel decide if Baal had turned off the faucet or if Yahweh was judging their divided allegiance? Look for the one who answered with fire. Look for the fire. You know, with the lukewarm Israelites and their limping and God consistently always reminding them, do not turn yourselves to idolatry. Why doesn't God just send the fire down on them? <laughs> like hit the reset button. Idolatry was punishable by death. God would have been justified. Verse 37 is key. God is turning their hearts back again. God is the one acting on behalf of his people to end their divided allegiance to him. The point of this whole thing wasn't the false prophets of Baal finally getting theirs in the end. It was the heart of the people of God. Through the fire, God moves to turn their hearts back again. In Luke 9, Jesus is rejected by a town. Uh, they won't let him come in. And the disciples are like, uh, can we call fire down and just like to punish them? And Jesus rebukes them. He's like, man, you don't, you don't get this. They're thinking of 1 Kings 18, God's fire, right? The justice and, and, and uh, judgment. Jesus rebukes them though. You don't understand. And just a little later in, in Luke 12, Jesus teaches them about this fire of judgment. He says, I came to cast fire on earth. And would that it were already kindled, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He says, you misunderstand why I came. I'm not Elijah on the mountain calling down judgment on the people. I am the sacrifice on the mountain consumed by it. I take the fire, the justice, God's judgment for the people. I'm the sacrifice. On the cross, on a mountain, Calvary, Jesus took God's judgment on behalf of sinful, limping, idol-filled people with a divided allegiance, you and me. And so if we want to find God, we look at the fire that Jesus took. Every other God says, perform for me, sacrifice for me, pray to me. Only Jesus says, I sacrificed for you. I bled, I was slashed for you. I prayed in the garden for you. I performed the perfect and completed work and with my dying breath said, it is finished for you. Only Jesus gives freely what every other idol says it'll give through our performance and sacrifice. And so if you want more of your heart to go to that Lord, the Lord of Lords, that did that for our divided hearts, look at the fire he took for you so that you could be welcomed in as a child of God. Let it melt your heart. Let it swell up your affections and love for him. So I'll pray for us. Would you pray with me? 
God, idols fail because they aren't meant to carry the weight of our worship. They have no hands to carry it, no mouths to answer our prayers or our cries for help, and no power to save. You alone are God. You alone are good. You have acted on behalf of your people to end our divided allegiance. Jesus, that you would love our divided hearts and sacrifice your own life to turn us back again. You get the glory forever and ever. Holy Spirit, can I ask that you would help us see the idols that have power over our lives, to help us stop limping between you and anything else? Help us to develop this rhythm of checking our hearts and what is lording over us instead of you. Convict us, but not to leave us in shame or guilt, but to, so that we can confess it and turn to you who love us and freely give you our hearts because you're what our hearts long for. So in this moment, God, we pray to you to, to increase our faith, increase our trust and our devotion to you. Help us to know the things that we are trusting in and devoted to that are not you. You are God of the storm. You're the God of the universe. The God that calls us by name. The God that died for us. You're the God of my heart, Jesus. Love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.